Mickey Grace and Rashida Grant Washington and you're listening to the Sold Out Podcast. The Sold Out Podcast is a one-of-a-kind podcast that empowers people to live on purpose. In its rawest form, this podcast captures history in the making by examining what it means to be sold out, to be all in, to feel and respond to what burdens the soul, and to practice vulnerability. Curated by me, Mickey Grace, and Rashida Graham Washington, Sold Out is rooted in the belief that human value is higher than the effort we expend towards our transformation. We are worth it. We are worth it. You are worth it. We want to follow you. We want you to follow us. But in order for you to do that, you got to know where to find us. And you can find Mickey Grace at Mickey, M-I-K-I, L Grace, Mickey L Grace on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me, Rashida, R-E-E-S-H-E-D-A at Rashida N-G-W and at Live Exclamation on Instagram and Twitter. And on Facebook, you can find me at Rashida Graham Washington. We hope to find you there. Black people have to work twice as hard. Unknown. I've never actually been told it, but for some reason, I know it better than I know myself. Work when I should be resting, cause that's how you become the best in. Whatever I've sought out to do, I have to compete with you. So today, Mickey and I are going to talk about differentiated approaches to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and why differentiation is so important in this process. We are not all the same. Uh, Contrary to popular belief, we don't all want the same things. We don't all share the same values. We don't all start at the same starting line, and we certainly don't all finish at the same finish line. And there are so many reasons why that is the case. Um, And so today we're gonna talk about how not all having a shared experience, not all having a shared or common history or culture, and certainly not all having the same um, access uh, to resources is what will require us to differentiate our approach when we take to doing intersectional, intergenerational, intercultural work from a healthy and healthful perspective. So Mickey, I wanna ask you this question. Um, why, Why is it important or do you have any exemplars from your life that really support the necessity of, of differentiation as we embark on this equity journey. Yeah, I think before I even jump into that, you know, a response to that question, it's important for us to talk a little bit about what what is meant by differentiation. Yeah, sure. Um, so what do you think? What do you mean? Yeah, so when I talk about differentiation, I mean that because we don't share common experiences and because we don't have the same resources, that what works for me or what is required for me to have a healthful life journey mm-hmm. might be very different mm-hmm. than what someone else requires. So if I, in order to go to college, if I have 
the financial resources and they've always been there. They've always been a part of my family lineage, but I don't have a lot of capacity for emotional relationships. Yeah. And you put me on a college campus, my tuition might be paid, but if I don't know how to engage other people or interact socially, I might not have a great college experience. In fact, I might not be successful right. in college. Right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> if I have the financial resources, but I don't have study skills mm -hmm. and I don't have resilience mm -hmm. um, and I don't have the fortitude it takes to um, embrace college and all of the challenges, because they're more than just academic um, that come with being on a college campus. I can have access to all the money in the world, but that would make it hard for me to to be successful there. There are other people who might go to college, and I'm just using that as an, this as an example, who have the emotional wherewithal, who have the academic fortitude, but don't have access to dollars, right? If you gave all of those people um, a college counselor, and that was the one thing you gave them all, mm -hmm. it's possible that the person who didn't have the emotional fortitude and the person who didn't have the fiscal fortitude, they would not be successful. Yeah. Where the one that had, that had academic needs might be able to survive. In that case, <clears throat> where I talked about emotions, academics, and finances, there are three needs present. Each one of those people have a different need. And unless we differentiate the resources that we're giving them, they won't all be successful. So oftentimes we get equality mixed up with equity. Right. And we don't take into account the human being who is standing in front of us and what their very particular makeup or composition mm -hmm. is, which will help us understand what their very particular needs are. And we can respond to those very particular needs. Other, what we often do is we play by one set of rules. Yeah. One size fits all. Yeah. And then there's no differentiating happening. And then we say, well, everyone had the same thing. Why weren't they all successful? Yeah. So um, I recently went to a college um, to facilitate some workshops. And the students there were talking to me about how um, a department on campus put together a presentation for them to kind of figure out how to navigate their life in a student organization. Mm -hmm. And um, they were saying how, you know, they, they saw that we needed help and they put this thing together for us, but we couldn't really, we didn't know what we needed help with. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes me think about as we talking about differentiation and differentiating our approach, it's kind of like, OK, if I'm not existing within this dominant culture that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. um, it may one be challenging for me to articulate what I need help with. Sure. Um, and then also when I can't articulate what I need help with. Uh, do you have the patience hmm. to help me figure out what it is I need? And. In what ways are you superimposing right. a narrative on me right. because I have needs that you don't understand, understand. Yes. right? Um, and we'll talk about narrative in a future episode and the importance of it and who gets to own it and how it holds power. We'll talk about that in a future episode. But because I need something and you 
devalue people who need the thing I need, Mm -hmm. then you devalue me. So if I don't have certain emotional fortitude, for example, and I believe that we're all guilty of this to some degree, because if I speak for myself, I don't have as much patience as I would like to have Mm -hmm. for people who just fall apart at every um, unfortunate situation that comes up. That if you are having a meltdown because something didn't go your way, I might look at that and assign a certain devaluation because I don't have a lot of patience for fragility, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, And then me superimposing that narrative on you also impacts the way that I respond to you and your needs. Right. Likewise, I believe that when um, when individuals from traditionally, historically and intentionally marginalized people groups show up in spaces where they haven't had previous access, Mm -hmm. so they don't know all the rules of the game. Um, we decide that they are uh, naive or ignorant or that they lack some capacity. And as we respond sometimes by dumbing down um, their experience or dumbing them down, like, oh, they just don't know. They can't do this. They can't do that. But if they were in that space and had exposure and access to that space more frequently, they would be able to be in that space like anyone else there. So I want to make the distinction that differentiation is not accommodating someone who does not have capacity. Differentiation is creating space for people to show up with the gifts and talents and strength and power and wonder that they actually do have. And I think that's a subtle nuance, but a really important one because um, we've even heard in the news recently where, um, where uh, I believe Biden is running for president and he talked about how he believed that black kids, black students can perform as well as white students can perform. Um, and he thought he was saying that in a complimentary way, mm-hmm. but when you center whiteness as the highest standard, standard right. then no matter what you say after that, it's still a dumbing down of a particular people group, as opposed to saying in their own right, black students are genius because yeah. that's factual information. So we have to shift from this space where we are implicitly stating that there's something missing or a deficit as it pertains to historically marginalized people groups and move to a place where we talk about their genius and wonder and brilliance in its own right and name how we have held these particular people groups back and we're making the lane not because they don't have capacity but because historically we've never made the lane before um i kind of want to talk a little bit more about just this um and I don't know why we always talk about this but I want to talk a little bit more about this academic setting sure um because there's a lot of like diversity equity and inclusion work quote unquote happening yes and the um in you know our institutions our educational institutions and it makes me think about this notion of differentiation up against this concept of help 
Mm-hmm. Like everybody um, who works in a diversity, equity, and inclusion office was hired to help. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it makes mm-hmm. me wonder what is, how do we make the distinction um, between help that shoves information sure. um, down the throats of our students and instead of considering um okay what is my role here right like I was hired maybe as the chief diversity officer or something along the lines of that Mm -hmm. but how do I differentiate my role based on not what my job description says Mm -hmm. but what the people on campus are in need of and that's the thing realistically speaking the only way to differentiate is to know the people you are coming alongside yeah i can't assign the proper resources the necessary resources to um an individual or a people group or an organization unless i know them well enough to know what they have articulated as their need So if I come into a space and I hold power and resource and I just decide, well, they're this way because they don't have money or they're this way because, you know, they have emotional deficits or they they're this way because they just don't work hard enough. Um, And particularly the last reference of just not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. I'll just give them more work to do. They may, in fact, be. If we continue with this college campus example, they may, in fact, be the hardest working group of students on the campus. Mm -hmm. But if I perceive that's where they just need more practice working hard. Now I'm giving more to do more rigor to people who are already working their fingers to the bone to be present. Um, And then I'm actually making things harder relationship and proximity, being close enough to people to know what their actual needs are are um is is really tantamount to um being able to differentiate our approach so how do you think you tote the line between um and i i I believe this gets into uh the topic of cultural agility right how Mm -hmm. do you tote the line of okay i need to i got a job right Mm -hmm. there's a job that i was hired to do sure um and up underneath that there was a job that I that there's a job that I was hired to do. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily in my job description. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you tote the line between those two things? Yeah, <clears throat> I hear what you're saying there. I I think that people who look and sound like you and me will often find ourselves in that space that we have a job description on paper and we get into an into an organization or into the work. And we find all kinds of things that need tending to um, because oftentimes we um, become the safe space for people to come and lodge their true needs, their true concerns, their true desires. And I believe that subversion Mm -hmm. is a tool in our toolkit. And I say a tool because I believe there are many tools or should be many tools in our toolkit. And it will be important for us to know how to pull out the right tool at the right time. I think in my DEI work tool belt, subversion is a tool in that toolkit. And I will need to know how to be agile 
as I manage the space between managing the space between what the organization or institution or agency or program or initiative is asking of me mm-hmm. and what the people articulate as an express felt need. I believe a good community connector has the agility to work in between those spaces in yeah. ways that bring everybody along and doesn't marginalize on either side. So I think about what is it that we teach our, what is it that we teach? What is it that we demonstrate to um, marginalized people groups um, as they, cause they are too doing the work. Sure. Um, they are too a part of it. And I wonder about those who um, are in spaces with these folks who are, using subversion i guess as a tactic against them Mm -hmm. how do they how do you notice that right what are the what are the indicators of noticing when you get someone from this administrative office to come and do whatever they dare to do and um they're actually using the tactic of subversion in a positive way or in a negative way i say in a negative way Mm -hmm. yeah can you give me an example of when that's happened or you know, mm. just take me a little bit deeper. Yeah, sure. Let me think about it. Yeah. Um. So I think that you know I'm I'm two years removed from college. Sure. And um, I had a really good experience. Um, I was able to get super involved. Um, met a lot of great administrators. A lot of great people. Um, there were some spaces though where I guess now that I'm older. I I can note that these people, they was playing us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, (laughs) They mm -hmm. were playing us. Um, Mm -hmm. And these are people who came to, you know, us as a black student union uh, with, quote unquote, good intentions. Um, And I think in a way it kind of creates some divisiveness because half of the group is like, no, they're working for us. Like, they really want to blah, 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 blah. And then the other half of the group is like, nah, um, I'm not down with it. I don't think they're really trying to help us. Um, So I guess I'm asking, what are the indicators of those things? I see. Well, that's a a really good question. And what I'll say to that is um, one huge indicator that that's happening is... um, People who overpromise and underdeliver mm-hmm. um, when they when they start the relationship with what they have to give and what they have to offer, what they're not saying often and what's implicit is what they want from you in return. Um, and so when people come and they're automatically or right away talking about what they have to give you, you might get curious about why they're so eager to share something with you. When they don't know you, and again, they don't know what your express felt needs are. So how are they sharing something when they haven't even done the work of uncovering if the, if the thing that they're sharing is something you desire or require? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one indicator. The other indicator, I think, is um, how much time they're willing to spend getting to know you as yeah. an individual, as an organization. Um, getting to know what your priorities are, what your values are, what your trajectory is, what you're hoping to accomplish. Um, 
people and entities who take the time to nurture that um, because it takes time to nurture that. And so if, if, if relationships start out with people or organizations who are willing to invest that time, that often is an indicator for authenticity mm-hmm. and a genuineness to do life and work together and not just be transactional and get what they want, extract what they need, throw you a bone, so to speak, yeah. and then move on. I would say that's the highest indicator I have to offer for whether or not a relationship or partnership is genuine. Yeah. Um, is And, and, and um, reciprocity. If every time we have a meeting or get together, it has to be on your turf or on your terms. Mm-hmm. So either on your turf or on your terms, then that kind of uh, reeks of a unilateral relationship um, and a hierarchical relationship where they're holding power um, in a way that's not mutual. But if they're willing to share the table setting process, if they're willing to share the agenda setting process, um, if they're inviting you to lead that process more than even just share it, I think those are really good indicators um, for a relationship or a partnership where people are willing to differentiate based on the needs of the individuals who are a part of that relationship. Yeah, I think this is a dope conversation. I'm really um I'm really interested in um when diversity, equity and inclusion work is being done to you. Yeah. <laughs> when it's being done to you, mm-hmm. uh what posture do you take? Um how do you distinguish and define your approach? How do you, you know, just manage the way you observe and participate in it? Um uh, because I think that and I want to get your thoughts. When have you seen um when have you, if at all, seen diversity, equity, and inclusion work being done to mm-hmm. a people group mm-hmm. um, become abusive, um, become not healthy? Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the what are the results of that? And, and also thinking about like how can um, people notice the indicators of like. I okay, I'm doing this, so this must mean that I have been engaged in some abusive DEI work. Sure. Yeah, um, I, I will tell you the most prevalent um, experiences of um, unhealthy DEI is particularly um, when people who are academized or learned in DEI from a theoretical perspective. So they've read all the books and they've been to all the conferences and they have all the certifications and they have all the licenses and they, they have all the, they've done all the training workshops and now they are engaging themselves as quote unquote allies, which really has been self-proclaimed because they've done it theoretically and they can tell you all the things they've done to make their allyship credible, but predominantly what they can name is readings and theoretical experiences. And then they come into spaces where people like me are doing the work and they 
now become the resident experts theoretically on what I and people who look and sound like me in the community, um, in our community, have actually lived. You know, we have a more practical experience. Um, and then they will even overtell me about the black experience or um, the traditionally marginalized experience um, because of what they've read. And I believe that that is um, a pretty prevalent way in which DEI work literally lands on my head. It doesn't change me. It doesn't transform me. It doesn't alter my way of Mm -hmm. seeing the world. And we really waste a lot of time with trying to be gracious to a person who doesn't know that they're in they're living out a blind spot and the blind spot is that they don't value the practical experiences of people who have been traditionally intentionally historically marginalized this is particularly true if i'm honest of white women because they are women they are a part of a people group who has been traditionally, historically, intentionally marginalized, Mm -hmm. but they also hold a significant amount of privilege that they don't calculate into their recipe. Mm -hmm. So they see themselves as the same as any other traditionally, historically, or intentionally marginalized people group. And this is exactly what I mean when I talk about differentiation that there's a level of privilege and entitlement that comes with being a white woman in America that's not being calculated, but she shows up with her academic theoretical um, DEI work, and so she's vested as an ally, and we're all the same. So since Mm -hmm. I'm like you, I don't have to wait for you to tell me your express felt need for me to know an approach. I can superimpose the theoretical philosophical approach to equity that I read about when I was in college on this experience. And that becomes significantly problematic. Yeah. Or that I've been told about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So when you think about your day to day life, um, how do you differentiate in your own practice? Mm hmm. Um, first of all, I I love that you asked me that question because it implies that you know that even as a black woman, as a college graduate and being middle, middle class, I still need to differentiate in my practice. Yeah. Um, that is, is as important for me if I'm entering into community with people not to assume that I know their experience. Yeah. Right. Or not to assume that their experience is exactly the same as mine. Even if they're a black woman who looks like they share a common experience with me, that that's not an assumption I can make. Um, And my whole practice for RGW is kind of rooted in that reimagining and generating wonder. Mm -hmm. How can I be curious with people about their lives and their livelihood, their experiences and their ways of being, even when I think I know yeah. Right. So I have um, girlfriends who I hang out with on the regular. And if I look at them, they are like me. They are women of color. They are middle, middle class. Many of them have children. Not all of them do. Many of them have spouses. Not all of them do. And these are things that are also true about me. 
Um, many of them are also queer. Many of them are suffering chronic debilitating illnesses. Um, many of them support issues and values that I don't support um, personally. Um, and those things are contrarily different to, than, you know, from who I am. And so if I just went with what I saw was the same as who I am, and I never got curious with them about their lives, I would never uncover the ways in which we're actually vastly different human beings. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be my loss because I don't get to learn then from the parts of them that are so different. Right. So part of my practice is that I should be curious and wondering and generative and questioning um, to get to know people better and more deeply, no matter what they look like. Yeah. That in 2019, I don't think we can make any assumptions about who's in front of us. And the joy of living for me really is not making that assumption so that I open myself up to discoveries and learnings mm -hmm. um, from other people. It's funny because I was just writing discovery as soon as you said that <laughs> in my journal uh, because I think about my own practice um, and the young people that I engage in my work. And I feel like um, one of the one of the the values that I've found to be very useful is this concept of discovery. Sure. Um, and even more so, discovery um, peeling back the layers of awareness. Yeah. And not just doing that in my own right, mm -hmm. but participating um, with the group in that, um, recognizing that like recognizing that I don't know all there is to be known and that um, I'm here to uncover with you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in doing that, I'm nine times out of 10 able to find um, some some space where we can now relate. Sure. Um, and I find in creating those relationships, that connectedness, um, it's so much easier to... It makes it easier to have authentic conversations mm -hmm. um, that actually get to the root of how I should differentiate mm -hmm. my approach, mm -hmm. right? You got to mm -hmm. do the work of like getting there first mm -hmm. before you decide how you're going to show up. Um, yeah, I think that I think that I can go at, at, at any given point. I can walk into a space with this decision on how I'm going to show up sure. and what my approach is going to be. But I never really know what that true approach needs to be until I actually take the time to peel back those layers and figure out who people really are. Yeah, I really love what you said and the layers of awareness <clears throat> this idea that there are layers of awareness that we get to delve into with people, but that before you go into the space with people, that there are these layers of awareness that we need to delve into with ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Um, and honestly, <clears throat> I've questioned oftentimes why we don't want to or feel a desire to go into those layers with ourselves and with other people. And it I think it's because we find stuff in those layers. And sometimes what we find there with ourselves and with other people, we don't like what mm -hmm. we find there. So my question to you, Mickey, is what do you do when within yourself or when you're with other people 
and you delve into these layers of awareness, you start to find things that make you uncomfortable. How do you deal with that? Oh, that's a great question. Um, how do I deal with that? I would say sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's real. <laughs> right? Like, sometimes I don't. I think that what is true is that oftentimes when I'm in conversation with folks and I'm in this discovery process with people, these people are helping me to learn things about myself that I didn't know existed. Sure. And I think um, one way that I've learned to kind of um, be one with those things is to just put them out in the room. Yeah. If, if that came up for me in the discovery process, then I'm sure that it came up for someone else who may not be as confident to share. Mm -hmm. uh, but I found that when I do share things that come up for me in conversation, people are like, I, I, I had that same thought mm -hmm. um, or I've experienced that same thing in just another way. Yes. Um, I think I, I've talked about this before in earlier episodes, but I have a, I had a blog and my blog was called When No One's Watching Me. Sure. And I had this idea that like the temptations in our life are no different from what others experience. Mm -hmm. If I could tell you what it is like to suffer, perhaps I can help you suffer less. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like I embodied that and um, share what uncovers in my own being mm -hmm. as a means of freedom so that mm -hmm. I can be released and you can be released. Yeah. So. Yeah. We, in a future episode, we're going to talk about pain yeah. and suffering and the purpose that it serves in our lives. And I think that as we pull back the layers of awareness, one thing we become aware of is, is the inevitable pain in our lives. And that's what makes us close the box back. Right. Mm -hmm. We're like, Oh boy. There it goes. There it goes. It's in there. Or we walk alongside people and they start feeling comfortable, yeah. which is what we say we want. But as they become comfortable, they start to share their pain. Yeah. They start to share their hurt. They start to share their drama. Yeah. They start to share the ugly parts of themselves. Um, I think it's Avery Sunshine who sings that song. The ugly part of me. Mm -hmm. It's just that ugly part of me. Mm -hmm. And we all have those parts. And I think if we're going to really get serious about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and if we're really going to get serious about differentiating how we show up to one another in this work, we have to be postured for the reality, for the inevitable um, experience of being with people in their brokenness of being with people when they're not shiny and put together and professional um, and happy and um, feigning joy, right? But that if we're really going to talk about the implementation of differentiated equity as part of our daily life, that we're opening up the door um, and creating an invitation to ourselves, from ourselves, and to others, from us, to be vulnerable and genuine and authentic in how we show up, and that that will come with some hard stuff, and that we will differentiate how we're responding to that. Um, and that some people have more hard stuff, not because they're difficult people or challenging people or, or 
not as bright or not as capable or not as whatever, they will have more needs simply because they haven't been afforded as many opportunities to have those needs addressed. And that if we are to do this work together, part of our role is to make a way and make a lane, create space and be with people so that they increase their access points to deal with the issues and needs that come up in their lives. That's what differentiated DEI is all about. So from there, we are going to segue on out of this thing. And uh, I just want to leave you with this one image from last week. Um, I believe in tying these uh, podcasts back to actual experiences, um, events that are happening today that make this work culturally relevant. Um, Two women of color are running for president, Kamala Harris and Tulsi Gabbard. Um, Go to CNN, look at their article that they posted for August 1st. Um, The article is titled, How You Know Tulsi Gabbard Really Got Under Kamala Harris' Skin. And oftentimes through the Democratic debate, they would, CNN would put these two women's faces side by side on the television screen. And it was almost like they were pitting them against one another. Now, somebody would say the same thing has happened with Elizabeth Warren and the same thing happened with Hillary Clinton, with other white women and such. And I think that as women, um, that kind of pitting is something we need to be mindful of for sure. But this is the differentiation I'm talking about that we need to be more mindful of it as it relates to these two candidates because we don't have a lot of experiences and exposure where we get to see two women of color running for president simultaneously. And how we depict that in the media, it impacts the way other young women of color or young girls of color will start to see and shape their hearts and minds and and their thinking around how women of color engage one another. So it is more important for us to think about how we are imaging these two candidates, more important than it is for any other candidate, because we have more depictions of white women and white men and even men of color um, doing things on the political landscape. And so this is what makes this conversation relevant today. We thank you so much for listening to our sold out podcast. And we ask that you will continue to meet us and greet us on Facebook and Instagram um, and through our social media. Mickey, can you tell us where to find you? Sure. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey, M-I-K-I-L, Grace. And you can find me on Instagram at Rashida, R-E-E-S-H-E-D-A at Rashida NGW. Thank you so much for listening. We are sold out. Sold out. Because they read it in a book and they went to EJI twice. <coughs> and Brian Stevenson signed their um oh, signed their version of Just Mercy. And they put it on Instagram. And they put it on Instagram and now they good to go. They, they ready to go out here and they start with the kids because some part of their soul knows they ain't got no business doing this work and kids are less likely to call them out. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. And I really think it's just messing up young people, like, oh. in between the ages of that 18 and 20-ish, because they don't know what's going on. They just in need. You know, yeah. they really in, they're really in need. Yeah. The whole thing um, that I wrote in that book. Yeah. yeah. Three whole chapters on that. Yep. It's like uh, that Dr. Seuss book, Are You My Mother? Yeah. Are You My Mother? Like, I'm just going to keep walking around asking until I find somebody and who says when, and yes. And then when I don't know... Then when I don't know what I need help with, y'all mad. <laughs> y'all mad at me. Y'all like, well, we've tried to help you. We've tried to help you all. Yeah. And the thing is, you don't know what I need help with either. So how you mad at me? Exactly. You should be mad at yeah, me. Yeah, like you, you've not done the discovery work of uncovering or helping me to uncover what that need even is. Yeah, that should be some training. Um, okay. Yeah. Are you ready for the next episode? What's the next one?